to another episode of Reverse Ambition, a podcast that features those who take a leap of faith to follow their dreams and passion. I got my brother, my frat brother, uh, the CEO of Revolt Television, Latavio Samuels. Welcome, brother. What's up, brother? How you doing? Good to see you, King. Good to see you, man. First and foremost, well, you know, congratulations on you know the things that's happening in your life. You know, I'm excited. Um, I was just saying Puff is a very smart guy because, you know, he got you on the team. He, re- he recognized talent. And uh, I'm excited for what you're about to do with Revolt because I know there's a lot of challenges there. But um, I want to start off with letting people know your background. So take me through your journey in terms of where you're from, um, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you majored in, and, you know, and just lead the conversation up to where you are now. Okay, cool. Um, so, Detavio Samuels, born in Boulder, Colorado. My father was. Uh, my mom is Black. I just say normal Black. She's from Chicago by way of Alabama from the South. My father's Jamaican, but was born in Costa Rica. Blub, 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 blub. I ain't know that, dog. <laughs> no, really? I ain't know that. that. I'm Jamaican. Home? You know that, right? Yeah. No, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, no, so, uh, you know, my family's from like St. Elizabeth. And mm. then uh, my fake family is from Chalky Hill. And so that's where I go back when I go back to Jamaica often. Uh, so, yeah, father was a professor of English studies, African-American studies at CU Boulder. Mm. So I was born in Boulder. Uh, he then took a job at Prairie View a and um, in Houston, Texas, did a short stint there. That's where my parents kind of fall apart. My mom moves us back to Colorado. So, okay. you know, that starts the like journey of like single mom, two kids, you know, barely right. making it, that type of a thing. Um, uh, was in gifted and talented, did well, like my whole young years. And then around sixth grade, you know, your environment starts getting to you. Mm. So, you know, the gangs and the fighting mm-hmm. and the streets and all those things. So even though I'm in gifted and talented, I'm now fighting, I'm getting in trouble, I'm getting bad grades, all of those things. And uh, the summer before I went to seventh grade, I got jumped by some crips on the way home. Came home, like crying, tears, all those things. And moms was like, okay, I got this. Sent me on the plane to go see my dad in Utah and never came back to that house. Oh, word. Suburbs. All of a sudden, my neighbors are lawyers and doctors and businessmen. I'm not worried about, you know, getting home safely anymore. And so I go back to being an A student Mm. and, uh, and performing. Right. And so that's why I learned like the power of education, the power of your environment. Like just if you're not in the right environment, you could be the smartest cat in the world. And it's still hard to get out. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful that she made those sacrifices to get me there. Um, let's see. Performed well in high school. Didn't really know where I wanted to go to college. Um, did well on my PSATs. Had a lot of folks uh, hitting me up. Decided to go to Duke University, probably just because of the basketball team. Didn't even know it was a good school. I remember being there <laughs> wow. the first month. Duke was rated like number three in the country. And I was like, what? I know the number three school I had no clue. Wow. And um, but it was it was a blessing. And then as you know, I pledged cap in my freshman year. Mm-hmm. And that was a life-changing decision for me. People ask me who my mentors are. I used to say I don't have any, but I realized my mentors are my brothers. They're the cats that pledged mm. me, the cats I pledged with, the cats I later pledged. And so um, spent four years at Duke, uh, where my story really kicks off this second semester senior year. I take a marketing course and fall in love. Historically, I was good at school, but I didn't love school. Mm. Which is the first time, like it was like a subject that I loved. 
And so marketing became the thing that I was going to chase. And when I looked into the future to see like, okay, um, who's doing marketing? What level? Of course, I learned about CMOs, those types of things. Most of them had MBAs. So I'm getting ready to graduate from Duke saying, I need to get an MBA. Average person gets an MBA going in at like 26. I'm 21 right. I'm trying to figure out. I don't want to wait, you know, right. four or five years, right? And so I take a job working at Duke's business school for two reasons. One, um, I now I'm connected to the people in the missions office. I'm learning how to get into business school early. Two, I'm building with the the, the Duke students. I'm going to classes. I'm learning mm. earlier than I could have or should have been. Um, fast forward, I end up getting into Stanford. So I go do Stanford. Nice. Um, Why Stanford? Stanford? Why Stanford? You know what? Because it wasn't Duke. So Duke was actually <laughs> my number one when I got into Duke. You know, I give the, the black women there so much credit. One of them who's like my aunt, my aunt Sharon pulled me to the side. I got a 700 and something on my GMAT. It was a pretty high score. And she pulled me to the side and said, Tavio, with that score, you can pretty much get into anywhere. Mm. So you should not just apply to Duke. You should apply elsewhere. And so I ended up applying to Harvard and Stanford as well, because she told me, I said, Duke is my number one, but I'm applied to where everybody else thinks is number one. Mm-hmm. Man, I didn't end up getting into Harvard. And um, two reasons I ended up going to Stanford. She looks at me and tells me, Tavio, you went to school at Duke, you worked at Duke, now you're gonna get your MBA at Duke. There's mm. easily somebody can tell a story that says, you didn't deserve this MBA, you mm. only got it because you knew the right people. Right. But if you go to Stanford, it's like, you grew up in Colorado, you were successful there. You came to North Carolina, you were successful here, both in college and in the workforce. Then you went to Stanford and California, you'll be, right? So she was like, you just have to think about the story. So that advice definitely had me kind of looking at Stanford. And then man, when I got there, like, cats don't know what their life on the West Coast life is like. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right. I'm playing basketball every day in palm trees. Like, wow. Business school property was like this. Um, compound that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. It was like my first connection to real affluence and real money. Mm. And, um, and, I, and I was intrigued by the space. And so, um, and the heart. So the way Stanford would talk about it is like, we get the best in the world applying here. We choose the people we like. So it was classmates who were not assholes. They were all mm. cool. I love the space. The story made sense. So that's why I ended up going to Stanford. Right, right. So your yeah. overall Stanford experience was dope. Oh, it was crazy. I also got my master's in education there. They had a dope dual degree program. No extra time, no extra money, two degrees. And it was like, yo, let's do this. Wow. How long are you at Sanford with all that, doing all that? Two years. That's what I'm saying. Like it was. You got yeah. your master's, your MBA and your master's in education, in education. bro. Did you have a two life? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Because at Stanford, like, you know, like uh, the beauty of Stanford, again, it's like when you're dealing with like real affluence, right? Mm. So there were no grades. Right. Everybody is basically pass or fail. High pass, wow. low pass. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like when you start playing on a different level, specifically as black, mm. you're like, oh, I didn't even know that this existed. Essentially right. what Stanford says is like once you are minted Stanford, that is all that matters. <laughs> if you want to come here and be valedictorian, cool. Do that. If you want to come here and start your own company, cool. Do that. Wow. If you want to write, it's kind of like however you want to use this time use it we're not we'd rather you take a finance class and get a 60 percent and walk out with 60 percent of the knowledge than be so afraid of mm. taking the course because you don't want to get a bad grade that you never learn finance right well we'd rather you learn 50 percent of it than zero and we're going to give you the freedom and the space to do that i had never seen anything like that before. wow wow yeah it's crazy it was crazy 
Um, so coming out of Stanford, I was uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur, was working on a startup um, funded by Google, Yahoo, a bunch of people. Anyways, that was what I thought was going to pop. But I took a job in the meantime, working at Johnson & Johnson, doing global marketing. Uh, within a year and a half there, decided like, okay, the startup probably isn't going to pop. I mm. need to be serious about my career. They should have promoted me. They didn't what made you? Me. What made you think, you know, to, you know yeah. make you realize a startup wasn't going to pop? Because, you know, yeah, we have people... been spinning. We have been spinning. So the way that I would say it now is like, I'm always now as an entrepreneur, I'm like, okay, in order to make a company pop, there's three to five things that I call the hard parts, or mm-hmm. the parts that you, you have to get right, right? It's never going to be the logo. The company never failed because of the logo. You know what I mean? The company didn't fail because you didn't get the, some presentation, right? There's like three to four things. In order for that company to work, it was a search engine company, like a Google, but it was mm. passion related search. So product and technology, like was a number, was a core thing. Um, also, we had to build out this database, which was a core thing, and then building an audience. What essentially we had was a team of people who were good strategists, um, who maybe could have built a good audience. Nobody on the, on the team had the database knowledge or the technology knowledge. Mm. And what we kept doing was trying to find different ways to get it, hiring different people, bringing different people onto the team and it didn't work. So long story short, we couldn't get the product right. Mm. And if you can't get the product right, then the company can't get right. And so essentially that's when I realized after maybe like 18 months, like, yeah, we're struggling to get this product right. I need to start focusing on something else. Right, right. So you say you focus on your career. That's um, right, that's right. That's and right. how did that play out when you start doing that? Yep, so beautiful. So I end up at Global Hue, uh, which is my first time inside of an advertising agency. Global Hue was the only place doing Black, Latinx, and Asian American marketing. Underneath how you end up group. at Global Hue? How you, how you? So the frat. So again, my mentors, right? So mm. a brother named Rob Chavis, dope cat, close friend, who's now a big time producer on Blackish. Um, he and his wife were EVPs at Global Hue. Um, his wife oversaw HR. And once they heard I was interested in leaving and interesting in the advertising space, they were like, come check us out. Mm-hmm. Bruh, I'm walking into an office. It was boomerang, but multicultural. Everybody wow. like 30 years, you know, 30 years old and younger, black, Latinx, Asian, music popping, enjoying life, playing video games. Wow. Doing where, where was Global Hue? Where was Global Hue? How many people? Uh, Detroit and New York at its height. We were about 300, 350 people. Wow. Offices and the Asian one was ran out of LA. Detroit um, was mostly African-American and then New York was mostly Latinx. Wow. So you was living boomerang yeah. life. You know, Dude, it was dope. <laughs> right, right. It was dope. It was a good time. It we're in your 20s, time. you know, like, so, you know, mid to late 20s. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So I got to Global Hue at 26. Um, that's where my career really takes off. Um, I was promoted there every year that I was there, basically. Wow. So the next year, um, the woman who runs the Walmart business leaves. They promote all of the people that like the three superstars at my level all got promoted to directors. One got became the director of Walmart. One became the director of Navy and one was the director of MGM. And they double promoted me to be the group account director over all of them. Wow. Right? So I was overseeing all three. Yeah. And that was like one year in. Right. And then literally every year from there, I was promoted until I was running all of Detroit. And then eventually the whole thing It's where my career really takes off. Wow. And Don Coleman gave me a shot that nobody else would have given me. Rob Chavis, Sybil Chavis, Alan Pugh. 
they all believed and you know it worked mm-hmm. for a very 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 long time so how was that experience in terms of you know becoming like in such a short period of time it seems you know head up pretty much the whole operation how was that experience and what did you gain what were some of the challenges as well yeah it was exciting but the challenges and i've had this challenge in every job i've taken i'm running teams of people who all know more than i do mm. right so you have to imagine i'm leaving johnson and johnson coming over to run a navy account knowing nothing about running an advertising business wow. what i knew was how the client thinks how to build strategy etc and my first three months i build a strategy and a plan that grows the navy business 200 percent in like three months that's the mm. part i know how to do executing it all i had no clue how to get any of that done right mm-hmm. so the tough part is when you are leading people who are older than you who have been in a business longer than you and understand it better than you right that's, uh, that's been like the key challenge in most of um the stops that i've had along the way right so how were you know those folks how do they feel like you know to see a little young and you know, for lack of a better word right now, coming yeah. and telling me what to do. How was, how did they react to you managing them? Yeah, I think, um, look, everybody's, it's, it's, it's politics, right? In the beginning, everyone is saying, well, this is the boss, so I can't just wild out, but, mm. you know, they may not also believe, right? Given right. All the things you just said. So, you know, according to my strategy, as I believe leadership is anchored in followership, you can't be a leader if people aren't willing to follow. Mm. And so some of the things that I do to try to get people to follow um, you know, my leadership style is one, I respect everything they built before me. Mm. Even if it's a turnaround job, if you weren't there and you don't understand the pressures, the budgets, the, like, I just show respect to whatever they did before me in spite of whatever challenges they had to face. The second one is there's a reason I'm there and in that position. And I would try to demonstrate and showcase that knowledge as quickly as possible. Mm. So when I talk about, okay, well, y'all don't know how to build strategy like I do. Let me do that really quickly. Show you, okay, boom, here, we're now up 200, 300%. Right. And then the third one is for the pieces I don't know, while I'm showing them this magic, I am scrambling underneath to learn all the things Mm. that I don't know. And I'm in the trenches with them, showing them that like, A, I'm willing to learn. B, there's nothing I'm going to ask you to do that I'm not willing to do. Mm. If I'm working till, if you're working till 2 a.m., I'm going to work till 2 a.m. And I think those kind of key things have helped me build fellowship in every single job that I've been in. Mm -hmm. So Global Hue, how long were you there? Uh, from 2007 till 2013, so six years, a little probably a little bit more than six years. Wow, what what made you transition? Yeah. So what was happening? So essentially, two things were happening from the global hue standpoint. Global hue had lost Verizon. Mm. Um, Verizon was out in New York. Um, the team there, um, whatever reasons, right, lost the business. And it was literally like half the business, which sent oh, wow. the whole company into a tailspin. So the business went from like thriving. We were a multicultural agency of the decade. We were the talk of the town to like really being thrown into this situation where we were struggling with cash flow issues, that type mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, so Global Hue was was struggling. At the same time, I had become bored with making 30 second spots. So the number one product is the agency we were making were TV commercials. People don't want to watch TV commercials. They're doing everything they can. The DVR, fast forward, right. Pass, um, right, skip them, whatever. Right. And so um, the only things people were watching were our Super Bowl commercials. 
Mm-hmm. And those only come around once a year. So separately with Chrysler, we started building a branded entertainment business. We did a mini movie with Lenny Kravitz. We took Beats by Dre. And this is early. So 2009, probably 2010, we took Beats by Dre speakers and put them in the Chrysler's, Fiat's, Dodge's. Oh, nice. Jeeps. And then we did this whole music video play around them. So you can see videos with 50 Cent, Eminem, uh, Will I Am, Carly Rae Jepsen that all have these like Beats featured vehicles. And I'm watching the Carly Rae Jepsen thing post numbers. It's probably got like 150 to 200 million views right now, right? Mm. So I'm like, oh, I'm learning that you can do the marketing in a way that people actually want to see the content. It mm. just doesn't look like a 30 second commercial. So that's when I started to fall in love with branded entertainment. At the same time, Kathy Hughes and Alfred Liggins had won the Walmart business, which I knew well because I was running the Walmart mm. account at Global View. And um, I knew they were struggling. And so I mentioned to them like, hey, you guys are struggling a little bit on this business. That was the first thing. The second thing is the chief revenue officer of Urban One, um, they called me to do a keynote speech. So I wrote a book, November of 2013. What's the name of the book? Um, Exist No More. Okay. Um, So I write this book and, and they call me in to be the keynote speaker to close out their sales conference. So I'm closing out their sales conference. It's all about personal development, motivation, all of that stuff. And then when we get into Q&A, the questions are about that. But it's also about ideas, how to drive revenue, the things they knew I knew as an agency person. The next day, the chief revenue officer calls me and says, I know you didn't know this, but I quit the job. And they asked me who can replace me. And I told them nobody until I saw you yesterday. Wow. Right. And he was like, once I saw you, I went back and told Alfred, this is the guy for the job. Wow. So then that sparked the conversations there, which ultimately ended up um, having me leave. And one of the biggest lessons from there was like, I've been working on that book for two years. Right. Mm -hmm. I was blogging every day, writing by myself. Nobody's paying attention. Two years, I decided to turn it into a book. That book becomes the thing that gets me the keynote speech, that gets me the new Facts. job, right? So right. I'm working, not really understanding what the purpose of the thing is, but mm. you know, besides hopefully impacting lives and helping other people, it also played a major role in helping to send my career to the next, right. to the next step. Right. So how is now that you in this place? Uh, TV One is it? You know, TV yep, One. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What did? What was your exact role uh, there starting now? And, you know, how were you, you know, received, you know, in that position? Yeah. yeah, so that one was a little bit light, easier coming in. Again, I knew nothing about media. Couldn't either read a media plan if you paid me to, right? Mm. But what I knew now was I knew ideas. And what I saw what happening was media companies were getting great shots at creating content with brands. They didn't know how to service brands in the way that agencies did. So I was like, if I can bring this agency capability, big ideas, big solutions in this ecosystem, we can probably make a lot of money together. Right. So my first role was the head of cross-platform sales. So anyone who wanted to buy, you know, Urban One is TV One, Radio One, everybody who does black radio, um, except Steve Harvey and the Breakfast Club. So Tom Joyner, D.L. Hughley, Ricky Smiley, right? Mm. All of those folks. Oh, wow. And, and then um, all the brands, like digital brands, you know, Madden Noir, Bossip. Hello, beautiful, global grind, Austin in that portfolio. So essentially the deal we did was I'll come if you let me build a branded content studio, give me some money so we can build an agency. And that's what I did. So I ran cross-platform sales and I built an agency that later became like a super dope award-winning agency with black and brown talent that was just doing, you know, really good work. Super proud of what they did. Um, We grow incredibly fast in my first year and a half. The digital uh, side of the business 
um, the president leaves and then they give me the whole digital piece of the company as well. So then I took over running the 70 plus brands that we had from a digital perspective. Yeah. So you think about 55 local radio stations, Tom Joyner, Ricky Smiley, Russ Parr, right? Add all those on. Bicep, Hip Hop Wire, Global, like you had, like you get to like 70. Mm -hmm. And so ran that platform up until I left last May. Right. So the digital space, how, what was different in the digital space compared to the more traditional media space? What was the challenges there? Yeah, I mean, digital is a complete different beast. Um, the amount of people it takes to make a digital machine run is larger than what it takes to make a TV company run, mm-hmm. right? Like you think about the UI, UX people, um, you think about the amount of metrics that exist in digital. You post something on YouTube right now, the whole world knows if one people, one person saw it or a million people saw it. Mm-hmm. When you do it in cable TV, the world doesn't know what type of numbers it's posting, only those who have Nielsen. Right. So you're under a much bigger radar. People are watching your ability to drive audiences to those channels. Um, it needs to be a very real capability. Um, also, the digital business wasn't making money. So the story mm. was... Um, Vice, BuzzFeed, Complex, all the people who people were bragging about back in those days weren't making money, Complex maybe, but the rest of them weren't. So that was essentially my challenge. When I took it over, they were probably losing four to $10 million a year. Wow. And, um, and last year they made somewhere around, you know, four to $10 million a year. So wow. we were like EBITDA swing. We were one of the first, I believe we were one of the first big profitable digital companies before Vice, before BuzzFeed. There was a little black company named Interactive One with a bunch of diverse smart talent that became profitable before all of them. Right. I mean, because I know like, you know, like the, um, you know, uh, Global Grind and Bicep. And I know those started from like blogs and, you know, one man shop and you were able to take those and put them in a in a whole ecosystem. That's How exactly are you right. able to do that? Because you know those were those start from like mom and pop type you know entities to yeah. now there is there's seventy of them. And how are you? How challenging was that to kind of you know take those you know put together? Yeah. yeah, no, I think um, so. I have to give Alfred all of his credit because Alfred was ultimately he had to see the vision and then finance the vision, and he mm. did. So we bought Global Grind, we bought the Mogulum brands, which were Hip Hop Wired, Madame Noir, um, and Bossup. And ultimately, the dream was there needs to be an 800 pound gorilla in the black digital space. Mm. And so we were firing at like 25 million people coming to our sites a month in a time when the next closest brand was maybe BET doing like eight or 10 million. Oh, wow. So the whole strategy was around building the largest black digital platform. By the way, Revolt, we're about to do the same thing, right? The mm. whole strategy is about being the world's largest black owned media company. It was a similar idea, but it was based on scale. We just want to be the black owned company with the most amount of visitors every single mm. month. And that's what we use to drive growth. Right, right. All right. Talking about revolt. Okay, so you killed it at, uh, you know, at our TV one, radio one. Yeah, they got so many ones in terms of their <laughs> exactly. names. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't know exactly. what you want to use. <laughs> urban, urban one is the parent, but urban one, urban one, exactly. um, which is exactly. which is a dynamic company, and and I, and I noticed, I've seen, I, I was watching from afar, and I've seen the Bossip Soul, and I've seen the Global Grind, and I've seen the personalities that 
was driving content, you know, that interaction. So, I mean, yo, that was definitely innovative and, 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 and groundbreaking and to, to, to leave on a positive note, whereas, you know, I'm making $10 million. What made you, you know, I was like, okay, it's time, it's time for a new challenge. What, what inspired you to kind of like, okay, my time has ended here. Yeah. So I wasn't even really willing to give it a look until I met Tark in person. Mm. Um, Tark is my boss. He he He's the one I recruited you? And um Tark he is. So well mm. they they had a headhunter and the headhunter who I knew I had a previous relationship with calls and says, Oh, I got the perfect job for you. Mm. And so I'm like, nah, I don't really know about that, right? He's like, we'll right. just meet with them. So I meet Tark at the Soho house and then comes a brother with sneakers, jeans. <laughs> yep, that's Tark. Same same gear, yeah. Yep, sorry. Right but this brother went to HBS and he, and he's, and he's about his game and we have like a dope convo and I'm like, Oh, well, if he's doing well in the puff system then like I could probably do well in a puff system. So that's the first thing that opens it up. The second thing is my dad passed uh, mm. February of last year. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I remember the most is I'm sitting at his funeral, watching people talk about him. And when they talk about him, I'm, I'm surprised because it sounds a lot like what I think I do. And so as a kid, you know, you look at your parent and your kid is just doing stuff. My dad was bringing, he was a college professor at the University of Utah. He would travel to India, to China, teaching mm. about Black folks. He would bring Tony Morrison, Maya Angelou, oh, wow. all of those people to Utah, do Black conferences. And so when I hear people talk about my father with my adult ears, I hear a man who was going into white spaces, mm. different spaces, championing black culture, getting people to understand the power of our people. And you can draw a straight line from that to what I do every single day, mm. championing black culture, just in the media space. Right. And um, maybe it was a point in time where I felt like I was not um, sliding down, but like I was cool. I was comfortable and it made me uncomfortable. Like, mm. it was like, oh, my dad was fighting for his people until he passed, man, like 70 something years old. I got a lot left in me. Mm-hmm. And that kind of put a battery in my back um, and also gave me a way to feel like the moves I was making could help build on his legacy. And so that's the second thing. And then the last thing that happened is I met PD. I met the chairman mm-hmm. and um, I enjoyed our interview, uh, flew to L.A. Um, I just happened to be here. He called me like, yo, come to the house, went and saw him. Um, my Say first word. time working for it. Yeah, he was dope. And it was my first time like um, looking a visionary leader in the face. I think I tend to be perceived as kind of a visionary leader, mm-hmm. um, but I'd never had a visionary leader. Mm. Man, just listening to him talk, listening to him dream, I was like, okay. Right. Sounds like right. it's a thing. And you so know, at that I, point in time, I was pretty excited about the opportunity. You know, a lot of people. Now keep going, bro. I, that was it. Oh. I was just saying a lot of people, um, you know, want to run away from challenges, you know, um, and I know I've seen revolt, you know, transition so many different times, you know, with, with employees and all that good, you know, all those things happening, but you ran into the challenge, brother, <laughs> you know, uh, and I know talk that's, that's who I am though. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, what made you feel like you could, you know, yeah, no, that's what I do. That's what I do. So like, I always tell people in my interview process, the interview has got to be a good fit. What is a mm. bad fit for me is if you want me to come in and maintain. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely that person that's like, if you want me to come in after Steve Jobs and just like, keep it afloat, that's not my idea. Mm. I'm a builder. I'm a fixer. I'm a change agent. 
and I'm always going to, my gifts are best suited for those spaces. And so I get excited about challenges, right? Like mm. that's, that's when I get to like use my brain and do work. So I'm going to run into that space. But what was here that's different is the, the revolt has all the ingredients, right? Mm. So whereas people might've seen the challenges in the funk, I see hip hop, which is driving global culture, PD, who's one of the biggest, dopest global icons of our generation, a brand that's focused on Gen Z and Gen Y, which is every advertiser's dream. Like Mm. we had everything we needed. Um, So I saw the opportunity, recognized that there were challenges and those are always gonna be fun places for me Mm -hmm. to play. So what do you you envision, you know, Revolt being and what, you know, what do you, you know, what's your game plan in terms of really meeting those challenges? Yeah. Yeah. I'm incredibly proud of the team, man. You know, I came June 1st. It's now almost April 1st. And that short period, the team has done a heck of a turnaround, mm-hmm. right? Um, with the onset of COVID, the, um, George Floyd being murdered, uh, we re-anchor ourselves in social justice, which gives the brand purpose and mission and meaning, which we didn't have before. And now the world can see that and respects that and is responding to that. So mm-hmm. we repositioned the company and the team did an incredible job doing that. Um, after we repositioned the company, it was just about showing up in the social justice space and nailing the Revolt Summit last year, which they did an amazing job doing. This year, we're coming in with just big dreams. So the, the, the easy number one dream is we want to be the number one the largest Black-owned media company in the world. We believe that there should be a Black-owned Disney or a Mm. Black-owned Viacom, right? When you look at Black-owned media companies, you can't find one that makes more than a billion dollars a year. Mm. Um, So what does that mean? It means that like all things, Black media companies are operating in scarcity and lack, right? Mm. Um, And while the rest of everybody takes, has the money, and they have the money to exploit the culture, right? And they can do so in a way that doesn't take care of our people, et cetera. So we believe there needs to be a black owned media company at scale that is the size of a Disney with the pocketbooks of Disney to green light the work within the culture that we believe the culture in our community wants and needs. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the big high level vision. Um, within it, we've got a bunch of pillars that matter to us. For example, we talk about making creators owners and building a platform for creators. Um, gone are the days where uh, creators go to spaces, um, go to media companies, do deals. Those those shows make millions upon millions for them and the creators don't see any of it, mm-hmm. right? All of our creators, we're doing some sort of equity share, profit sharing, okay. something in the IP that's like, look, if you win, if we win, we all win, mm. right? So just trying to change the business model so that we get it right for our community while we are trying to scale and big build this thing that simply has just never existed. Right, 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 right. So in terms of creators and content, what type of content, you know, specifically you, you guys want to focus on? Yeah, and you so, say, you, you know, Generation X and Z, is that Z, your- Y and Z, I might have said- Y and Z, Z. Y and Z. Y and Z. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God damn, you're not messing with X, bro? <laughs> now y'all gonna come. Oh, uh, bro. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we definitely have X. But okay. Designed for Y and Z. Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. So, in terms uh, of the content, what do, what type of the content is Revolt like? You know, really um, putting out there and whatnot, and yeah. the type of creators that you guys are aligning yourself with. 
Yep, I'll give you three ways to think about it. Um, we're super interested in breaking new ground, being disruptive, playing in spaces that Black media companies have not been allowed to play in the, in the past. So that's one lens to look through it. When we talk about our content pillars, we talk about four content pillars. Hip hop gives you permission to play in any space because hip hop touches the cultural fabric of everything. Mm -hmm. um, so we break it down into lifestyle, music, um, social justice, and cultural authority. Cultural authority are things like the Breakfast Club, Noriega, anybody who's speaking on the weight of hip hop past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And then the last way in which we're really thinking about it is um, we're shifting the model. So whereas the development model for television is we make, we find great shows, we develop great shows, and then we go find talent to be in these shows. Mm -hmm. We're doing much more of like a bad boy music approach. Mm. We find a dope talent, with engaged audiences, we putting them in the studio, and then we're collaborating and making something together. Okay. So if you look at our latest show that we just launched with Justin LaBoy, we signed Justin first, but we didn't sign him first. We started working on the collaboration first, locked in on an idea, and then we're now executing that. So now we know that the talent is excited about it. He's got you know executive producer credits to his mm -hmm. name, right? We're helping him build for his future. Um, and it's something that the talent's going to promote because it's also their idea and their work. And if it works, it works for all of us. So just aligning all of our interests um, so that we can get the biggest bang for our buck. Right, right. I mean, you said something about like you about to build out a digital space. Is that something, you know, in line with, you know, part of the, you know, the goal and the vision? Absolutely. So people see us as some people see us as a linear network. Um, we clearly have one and that's part of what makes us unique. There's no other hip hop cable network, but we see ourselves as a digital for forward media company. So mm -hmm. let me just give you a couple of things that we're doing. So this year alone, we are revamping our website to be more video first so that we can mm. get a video audience there. We are launching all of our apps. So there'll be apps on in Q2 mobile. So Android, iOS, Roku, Apple TV, we are also in conversations with all of these streamers and what they call VMVPDs. NBC has one called Peacock, Pluto, Two, uh, yeah. Xbox, right? So right. we're in conversations with all of those as well. And, you know, if things go our way, you'll also see us have, you know, solid footprints in those spaces as well. So, yes, the linear network still exists and we're going to keep feeding that. But we've got to be where, you know, the audience lives and breathes, which is largely digital. Right. Yo, dude, you really revamping and re rebuilding, brother. Like, y'all breaking it down and, you know, and, and yo, dude, um, how, you know, how many hours in a day do you focus on? Because there's so much moving parts going on right yeah. now. And, yeah. you know, how, you know, how, um, how much time does this take? You know, yeah. is yeah, it overwhelming? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right now it's overwhelming. The first thing I want to say is the, the beauty of it all is that I'm not the one doing all of the work. I have a phenomenal team and there are people who are How big is your team? How big is the team? So you should think of us about like 75 to 100 okay. um, zone and growing, right? Like we're just going to keep growing. We're going to keep driving that revenue so we can hire more people of color, more black women, more all of that. Um, but just more people, more diverse bodies. Uh, we just believe in the value of diverse perspectives. But mm. there's a, an amazing team who's actually doing all of the work. Um, people who are driving all of these initiatives, revamping the website, launching these apps. It takes a, 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 a kingdom to get it done. And so I do not want to take any of the credit. I want to put all of the credit on them. Uh, where my work has really come in has been um, the time it has taken to like figure out vision, figure out strategy, 
learn this ecosystem, try to build relationships with the chairman, building relationships with a company of people who I'm leading that I've never met in person, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, right, you know, right. Is, right, right. Like, I've never met 90% of the team in person, right? Wow. And so those are the places that have like are taking my energy in, and I would be lying if I didn't admit that um, I really thought that the transition of CEO was going to be very similar because I was leading in a large way already. Um, but I was very wrong about that. <laughs> the, the, the move to CEO has definitely come with some new things. And so those first two or three weeks from the announcement, I was drowning like mm. 80 hours a week. But but now I'm back to a place where I now um, am, I'm sitting at a 50,000 foot level. I understand my priorities. I'm navigating my schedule accordingly. So now I think I'm back into a good place. It's it's a PD system. So it can't stop, won't stop for sure. Right, um, right. But you know, it doesn't mean can't stop, won't stop. And I don't have a light. So it's right, good. right, right, right. Yeah. Talking about PD and um, you, you mentioned Tark earlier. How is it working with those, you know, bro those brothers? What's the dynamic like, you know, in terms yeah. of accountability and challenging and, you know. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges that you guys have to work through? Yeah. So what I'll say about working with the chairman is I always say this. It's like um, he has a way to put a battery in your back like you've never seen before. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like no matter right. how you dragging, no matter how you feeling, you enter into a room with him and he's just going to put a battery in your back and tell you that you can go conquer the world. I love that. Right. I love that. I'm, when I talk to him, I'm like, you literally just have to keep forcing me to dream. Mm. It's so easy to get locked into the scarcity and the limited resources mm. that you have. And PD don't care about any of those things. Yeah. And so that's helpful because he just reminds me to dream all of the time, which I love. The challenge in that can be, you know, sometimes people are pushing you to dream when you really need to worry about the business realities, right? Right, right. Um, so that's right. where some of the challenge can come in. But I love the fact that he makes me dream. Mm -hmm. um, it's exciting. And then with Tark, um, Tark is an amazing boss. He is um, human. He is incredibly intelligent. He is um, just a solid black man. And so he's a coach. He's a mentor. Wow. All of those things. And so I love working with Tark. I think I'm probably getting more coaching from Tark um, and support from Tark than I've had in a boss in quite some time. Usually my bosses have been really amazing and kind of let me run. Tark lets me run, but he's also like giving me feedback, pushing me. And uh, again, I just really appreciate the opportunity to work with that black man. He's super right. Dope. Right. Yo, There's so one more person. Can I say? There's a black woman on the Ciroc Diageo side that I work with all the time named Ingrid Best, who's also super dope. If you haven't interviewed her, maybe you should like, I, I can make yeah, it. Put me on. I'll definitely put her. You know, right. She came into the Ciroc de Leon business by herself. One person has built a team, an all black team of like all stars, largely women. And they are kicking butt and taking names on the Ciroc and de Leon side. Wow. And so to have a sparring partner like that on the other side, pushing me to be great. She's a woman of God. We can talk together, pray together, like move together. So the whole team is the, the team is dope. Wow. It seems like a, it's, it's a large, but it's a very intimate community yeah. of you guys who really buy bought in to, you know, the big picture and want to see each other win and want to see the culture right. win, That's you know? Right. So right. balancing purpose and profits. I know sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, the type of content, you know, it's, it's dope, but is it good for the culture? How do you mm -hmm. guys determine, you know, 
how do you guys balance that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I think that's hard, but I'll say historically for black media companies is black media. One of the reasons black media companies maybe did not get a rise to the ascent that they could have is because we always had the responsibility of the community on our back. Right. So we weren't willing to do the ratchet shows. We were going to do the clean shows that are going to get smaller audiences. Then that's how we TV, Bravo, all these other people come in, bring all the ratchet, right? Right. All the numbers and all the cash. And so just having seen that for the last decade, I think a key piece of me as uh, my thinking is it's not about, do you have a ratchet show? It's about, do you have balance? If Mm. all you're putting into the community is ratchetness, I think there's a problem. Right. You got balance. If you've got ratchet and revolt black news, if you've got, you know what I mean? Like sports and, and so I think one of the things that like, I think about a lot is just making sure that the portfolio is holistic Mm-hmm. Um, we target, we design to a, a target that we call young, gifted and black. I think of it as almost like that 20 year old kid that was in college while and like, you know, whatever, he going to want wild on the weekend right. and drink and do whatever. Then on the next day, like he may wake up and go to church. And watch right, right, news, right, right, right. So, so we just trying to make sure that we program to his whole self that we don't leave anything on the line. And so, um, so that's one piece. The second piece that I would say is from a, uh, so that's how I think about the entire portfolio. When I think about the content we're creating, it's really about the creators. Again, so like my whole thing is like, how do you give these creators their opportunities to take mm-hmm. their shots and see if their stuff works? And so it's just making sure that we're working with a diverse group of creators who aren't going to give me all of the same content. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make sure that we, you know, can 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 have a much more uh, a well-rounded and balanced portfolio. Right. Yeah. Listen, I, I've always said talking about the college life. I mean, I had an amazing time at Howard, you know, and right. we went through we went through so many challenges, which, you know, with a big fraternity or just yeah. lifestyle. And I'm like, if the culture could see how we lived in college, Man. it'll be a game changer because, <laughs> you Man. know, you know, and I see that's where, you know, hiring someone like you could bring to you know a solution to the problem you know a different different type of lens Mm -hmm. that goes beyond just hip-hop that just goes beyond just street you could bring you know that 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 content that resonate because you know what we do in college we we watch you know we watch you know our favorite show i remember watching the simpsons all the time and watching all these shows every sunday night we watching these shows because it it you know it's something that we did on our downtime and i've always wondered how come people don't create content for for our lifestyle and it, you know right. you know what i'm saying so that's i'm right. kind of excited you know for you know what you guys are about to do bro i think that's exactly right so we're trying to pick like i said the right creators and the right the right talent to um to, to get that done. But that's why we think that it's important that there's a black owned media company mm-hmm. who's got the money to um, fund these dreams. No longer can we depend on, um, and I love them, but no longer can we depend on white people at the top of organizations to yeah. light what they think is right and Facts. relevant for the black Facts. community, right? Like you need people who are coming from inside of the culture. You need people who are studying the culture and can see people before they pop. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the ones that, you know, like you look at so many of these companies are giving imprint deals to the only black people they know. People who do dope work, uh, Ava, Shonda, the Obamas, right. people who do dope work. There's a whole like group <laughs> of dope creators 
creators that like people can't even see because they're not in the community and from right. the culture, right? So right. that's why this whole like, no, you need a black owned media company who comes from within the culture, who has big dollars, big resources, and can green light the work that we know our culture wants. And guess what? If our culture wants it, we know that everybody else is coming to the table, right? right. So that's essentially the game we're trying to play or we're right. playing. Well, listen, I mean, I look at, you know, being on Twitter every day and seeing the type of content that's dope, that resonates, that goes viral. And that's is for free. These, yeah, these yeah. people are giving away amazing talent and content for free because right. this is what they are naturally. You know, so having the company that revolt, that identify these people and, like you said, put them in a position to be themselves and where they own their content. I feel like that's genius, brother. Thank you, man. I'll give you one more example. Jim Jones. Jim Jones been doing this like super dope weather show. Just him on his IG. Weather show? Just him on his his phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? Just Jim go out, funny as all, get out. And it sounds like the culture. I've never seen the culture doing weather, right? Mm -hmm. He did it for two years. Jim and I meet and he shows me this. I'm like, Jim, this is genius. We said, let's do it together, right? We're now on season three of that at Revolt. Wow. Shows doing hundreds of thousands of views every single weekend. It's the same idea Jim had, but we now brought a production capability, storytelling nice. capability, resources to make it better, right? So again, to your point, the culture is doing all of this super dope content, sometimes giving it away for free. Right. And we're saying, no, 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 you're a dope creator. Let's elevate the work and then let's go make money on it. Together. Right. So how do you identify these groundbreaking talent? Even talent don't even realize their talent. How do you like yeah. identify, you know, these folks and, and, and how you engage them? Yeah. So um, one of the ways we have a chief brand officer who's another dope person on the executive team. Dion Graham. So Dion, keep his head in the culture, keep his head in the streets. And so he is critical. I almost see Dion as almost like A&R for us. Mm. Right? He's we're looking through the culture saying, all right, who's dope? Who's the culture respecting? We need to build with them. And mm. then he'll bring it to me and we'll figure it out. So Dion is one of our secret weapons. We also have a group at work that we call the Brain Trust. So these are people who are on the content team, but reflect the audience. So they're more Gen Y. May, I don't know if we have anybody Gen Z, mm. but like when you talk to them, they don't know anything that we know. And they know a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. Right. And so every two weeks, we bring everything to them. Logos, storytelling ideas, show ideas. Like, yo, is this hot for your generation? And so we'll also solicit stuff from them, right? Like, yo, who do you want to see a show with? Who do nice. you think is dope, right? And then we also have a thing called Revolt Nation, which is a... Um, a uh, a research panel of thousands of people who are our audience and same thing. We'll Mm. talk to them like, who do you guys want to see? Who do you think is hot? So from data externally, data internally, and A&R who's in the streets and has a dope eye, we kind of look at all of those things together and figure out where we're going to be placing our best. right. Yo, it sounds like it's like how the record industry was in the 90s. (laughs) I say that's what I like. I say that all the time. Like we weren't intentionally doing it. But like the more I would talk about it, the more I like. That's why I now say stuff like it's more of a bad boy model. Right, 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 right. Like, look, who's guys got your street team, get your A&R, you know, you know, that's dope, bro. That's dope. Yo, listen, man. What I love about you is because you have the, the professional, young professional eye you know but you also have like the street eye as well and i feel like i've always said the young professionals always get overlooked 
you know, I, I might be aged out, but I know them young 20 something, you know, that's going to like grits and biscuits south in the city. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? They, you know, they, they got a nine to five job and they got a lot of disposable income, but nobody's yeah. really talking to them in terms of content so i'm excited for what you do brother because i know you 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 can't that's what the world you came from thank you king yeah i'm look all i need is money i'm out spending all my time trying to raise money Mm. somebody put some more money in in in, in our coffers and we off to the races right 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 now in terms of money how do you guys i know you guys go for traditional sponsorship you know that is that the main revenue stream or you know you know how are you guys going to make money because at the end of the day that's Bottom line, that's what it's about, right? No matter how yeah, much you want to do for the culture, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah, so our revenue streams look like what most TV networks, radio uh, revenue streams look like, meaning we get money from uh, the affiliates or the, mm. um, you know, the Verizons, the Comcast, the, those types of folks, um, the same way an ESPN does. Mm-hmm. Then we get money from advertisers who believe in the product. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I'm unhappy to say that it took George Floyd, but man, post George Floyd, advertisers have come in. Oh, in wow. It's like no tomorrow. And, you know, I'm super proud of the work my sales team is doing and telling our story and grateful that there are brands that hear it, that believe in the purpose, that believe in the mission and are down to support. So our advertising revenue is like taking wow. off, um, which is great. We have things like the summit, which you know about. So that's easy yeah. stuff. And so um, we so we've got three key ones, right? Nothing that's confidential. People could easily see from the outside, and we're just gonna keep building and diversifying. Yeah, man. Yeah, listen, man. I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate yeah, you. I'm actually appreciating you being in the position you're in, because I've always said, any you know these these music station, they're just missing. They're just so limited in their scope. They just attack a problem from one point of view, which is not you know no fault of their own but i feel like you have that perspective or an overview along with you know puff and Tarek, man i feel like you guys are on to something man thank you brother i i, I pray and believe you are 100 accurate i'm uh, saying brother i gotta get my numbers up so y'all can pay attention to me <laughs> yo facts facts no i mean that's the thing like that's one of the things it's like who's already got audience who's building and right. how can we make them be better right like that's right right a key part of the strategy right right we're gonna invest in the people who have proven that they can build audiences that's what right Jim did right we're we working with jim that's what justin the boy did that's why we're working with justin right 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 right, right. Um, so yes keep build keep building king i <laughs> mean yo this interview is gonna help me <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> Yo, uh, so your personal life, I know you move out to L.A. and, you know, how's that life, man? I'm hating right now, brother. (laughs) As you should be. As you should be. Like, I always say, I don't know if I'm going to love L.A. when quarantine is over. Mm -hmm. But um, I started on Wall Street in the 58th floor of a building that was 1,200 square feet. It was the height of the epidemic. It had become a ghost town. It was like a zombie apocalypse Mm. down below. And we were trapped in our building, right? Like you couldn't really move. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came to LA, man, I got a pool on the roof. I got, you know, wow. almost twice the square footage. We've got a balcony that's large. So you just want to talk about like just health. And by the way, I paid less money than I did in New York. Oh, right? say word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say so word. That's why we're moving out to LA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, I can wake up every day, walk outside, get fresh air. We don't. I, I don't even turn the lights on in the house. We. I just live by the sun. When the sun wow. goes down, 
then like the house goes down. So like, it's, it's very natural. I swim every single morning. Um, so I love LA during quarantine. I'll Quality you know of life is, it's a, it's a you know, yeah, good place, brother. It's you good, know what I'm saying? It's good. It's good. It's good. Beaches, hiking, trail, like it's got everything you need wow. um, even in a world where a lot of the world is shut down. Right, right, right. Yo, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to about to wrap this up. Um, yes, we sir. could talk, we could talk forever, but man, what is the biggest advice that you, you could give someone who is, who wants to be where you, who wants to be where you are right now and, and, and really not only, you know, have a job that makes money, but you, their impact in the culture in a, in a, in a, in a real way and in a, in a, in a long-term generational way, you know what I'm saying? Generally, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, cause a lot yeah, of people's um, looking at the you know, the lights and the camera and, and the flashes and the and the lifestyle and they chasing that, you know what I'm saying? You know, what yeah, do you yeah. what do you yeah. advise people who's looking for some real doing some real work and having some, you know, making some real impact? Yeah, so I have a couple of things. Um, one, Steve Jobs gave this super dope stamp speech at Stanford's one of their like commem- commemoration speeches mm-hmm. where the key idea is like the dots never connect going forward but they always connect in reverse. Mm. And I'm in one of those moments where like, if like that no truer words have ever been spoken, right? Mm. So in my twenties, I was trying to be an entrepreneur and was frustrated because I couldn't get the company to pop, right? Then I get serious about my career and I go to the agency side where I learn about the power of ideas and I get to work with all these brands and see how they do marketing strategy. Then I go to a media company I take the strategy from that I learned from J&J, the agency life that I learned, and I build an agency inside of a media company. So I mm-hmm. learn how to do that. Then I start learning the digital media business. I give Alfred all the credit. Nobody else was going to give this young black man the opportunity to run a digital media company with zero digital media background. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he did. Fast forward, I'm now at Revolt, where I am leveraging the strategy that I learned from the client side where I've now not only built an agency, I've already built an agency inside of a media company. I know all the like, uh, all the, the failures that we made, mistakes that we made the first time. Right. I'm just building the same thing in Revolt. Right. And one of the biggest things that Revolt has to do is usher itself into this like digital reality. Where I just ran all of the top black sites from the digital world, et cetera. Facts, so, right. So now I'm in this place where it's like, when you look back, you can see how all of that stuff makes sense on the way there. It didn't feel as good, right. it didn't feel as comfortable the whole way, right? Um, so one of the things is like um, being willing to dream, understanding that there's often a gap between the vision you have and where you think you should be and where you are. And to like, part, it's like the faith walk. You just got to keep moving, mm. you got to keep moving, you got to keep believing. And one day, those things will all make sense in reverse. Right. And I'm not saying I'm done. Like, I think revolt is going to be another thing that I would do for who knows how long, two years, right. 10 years, 20 years. Right. But it's going to be a setup for whatever the next thing is. And then I'll be able to make sense out of all of that. So one of them is just to recognize that the dots only connect in reverse. Continue that faith walk towards your dream. Faith walk. Um, I like you, that. And you will get there. The other thing I posted on my IG this week that's just been on my heart is this idea that's like the most important story we learn to tell is a story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Right. So so often I hear people and their narratives about their life, their experience, who they are, what their identity is like grimy. And I'm like, man, it's going to be really hard to be amazing when Mm. the story you're telling yourself every day is about how grimy things are. Right. So 
um, recognizing the power of like using the word like I am, um, uh, like literally those words I am and whatever comes after is like the most important things you can mm-hmm. ever say and speak out loud. And um, so anyways, I think that's just my other piece, which is that we have to be super conscious of the stories that we're telling ourselves day mm-hmm. in and day out because the wrong stories can break the faith walk and take you off of your trajectory and plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, I probably have like a million other things I could say, but we'll, 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 we'll leave it. Oh, listen, those. man, I'm, I'm ready for your TED talk. I'm ready for your books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, Tarek, you know, said that, you know, he's, you know, his journey has been actually doing the work, getting his hands dirty, you know what I'm saying? Getting messy, you know, getting yeah. that fight, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I and I and I love watching a good fight, brother. So I'm excited yeah. to see what you guys do, man. I'm very excited. Thank That's you, why I, I slide in. I was like, yo, I need to get you guys on on record. Yeah. <laughs> Reverse ambition podcast. Exactly. You know, to let people know what's about to happen up in there. You That's know what I'm right. saying? That's right. We'll do it again in a year and we'll take a look back, right? See oh, for happens. sure, for sure. I mean, you know, I might try to invite you on Clubhouse to have like these type of conversations and a real conversation in terms yeah, of I'm open. You know what I'm saying? So appreciate you, brother, man. Continuous yeah, success, man. I know there's a lot of work you got you got ahead of you, but I think you, Tarek, and Puff is 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 you know triple threat, tri- triple threat, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. You know yes. what I'm saying? So congrats, man. I appreciate man. the love. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's just good to see you. It's good to see your face. I'm I'm glad to hear of all the positive things. Yeah, man. Happen. I'm adulting over here, brother. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like it or not, right? Here I'm adulting, man. I'm like, wow, how this happened? <laughs> but I, I love where I'm at right now. You know what I'm saying? And I'm Like you said, it, it doesn't happen going forward, how the dots connected. But definitely I look back in terms of how I got here. It made total sense, you know? That's it. That's it. You just got to know that that's the way it's going to work out. Keep pushing. Mm. Let me know how I can help along the way. I'm with you on Clubhouse. If you ever want to do anything, I'm here to support. I love King. Yeah, man. I'll let you know when my numbers is up, too. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Let me be the first call. Yes, sir. Last. I got All you, right. brother. All right, All baby. Right, All right, yo. What up, what up, what up? Thank you for listening to another episode of Reverse Ambition. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and got some inspiring nuggets. Before you go, though, please remember to subscribe so you'll be alerted when the next episode is dropped. You don't want to miss out. And remember, it's never too late to leap to follow your dream or your passion. Always leap back. Live your life with no regrets. Until next time, my name is Kelsey Cooper, a.k.a. The Social Broker. Peace.